That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is the very first Postmortem podcast with our new partners at Fangoria. It's an exciting new endeavor with a brand new Fango. I have a long history with the magazine way back in the early 80s. I actually wrote a couple of articles for them, and they have covered most of my work over the years. Now, under new ownership, the magazine has been completely revamped as a high-end quarterly, and the company is getting into book publishing and film production in a big way. We're very happy to be joining them and being a part of the team. Our guest and I go back along the way as well. I first heard of John Landis while listening to a radio interview he did when he was in production on his first movie, Schlock. The piece was all about this 21-year-old whiz kid making a comedy monster movie about the Schlock Thropus, which Landis himself played. I met him years later when I was answering phones for the original Star Wars in a little office building across from Universal Studios that used to be a motel, and Landis was in his office next door in pre-production on National Lampoon's Animal House. Since that time, our paths have crossed often. He was executive producer on my first job as a writer-director on the Disney TV movie Fuzzbucket. I was a zombie in Michael Jackson's Thriller, which John directed. I cast him in The Stand, Sleepwalkers, and Quicksilver highway he cast me in the stupids as one of christopher lee's henchmen unfortunately my scene with lee lies on the cutting room floor he did a couple of masters of horror episodes too but john never set out to be a horror icon despite his passion for monster movies and the classic status of his an american werewolf in london his huge success with animal house and blues brothers and coming to america among many others made him the king of comedy but with Thriller and Werewolf and Innocent Blood, the horror cred is beyond reproach. He and Joe Dante joined me on the very second episode of this podcast to talk politics and horror, and it was our most controversial and discussed conversation yet. John is a very funny, very special guy, and I'm eager for you to get to know him a little better after this. Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. Take your imagination where it's never gone before. Join the thousands of students from all over the world who have embarked on the journey that is Tom Savini's special makeup effects program. Savini, of course, is the makeup maestro behind Creepshow, Dawn of the Dead, Friday the 13th, and a lot of your other favorite genre films. 
This 16-month program is designed to provide students with the skills necessary for a career in the special makeup effects and show design businesses. Graduates not only work in film and television, but in many other areas such as special effects labs, amusement parks, entertainment design and fabrication companies, costume companies, museums, and prosthetics. For more information and to see student work galleries, please visit dec.edu. If you're going to be in and around Atlantic City, New Jersey, I'm going to uh, be doing a couple of evening events at the New Jersey Horror Con and Film Festival at the Showboat Casino and Hotel. That's on March 29th and 30th, and I hope to see you there. So you worked in the mailroom at 20th Century Fox. How did that lead to you becoming a filmmaker? How did that lead to me? Yeah. Well, as I like to point out, it's not the military. You don't work your way up in the movie business. Right. It's, uh, you don't start out as an extra and end up as director? Uh, no. Yeah. Well, you can, I guess, yeah, yes. but um, it would explain a lot. I've no, the, the yeah. reality is that there's no right or wrong way to become a filmmaker. Uh, and when I was a kid, I was so anxious to be a director when I grew up that to get anywhere near production was my goal, just to be on a set. And the closest I could get was to be a mailboy at Fox, which was my first job in the industry. You learn a lot about mail, mostly. But I, <laughs> but I was on the lot at uh, the Pico lot, which is, I guess is now owned by Disney. It's pretty horrifying. Right. But um, 20th Century Fox was a major studio, and it was very exciting to be on the lot. I mean, I loved it. And I used right. to, you would do, your, we would do three runs a day where you had a route and you had to carry your mail stacked up. And I read every script <laughs> that came through television and feature, um, plus a lot of memos I probably was not supposed to read. <laughs> um, one of my favorite jobs as a mailboy was Raquel Welch had, had made. Um, Fantastic Voyage and One Million Years B.C. and Fathom, a whole bunch of Fox. She was basically a Fox. Fuzz. Yeah. Yes. And, well, she was doing um, 100 Rifles in Spain mm -hmm. with Jim Brown. And she had been in Bedazzled. Right. And th this was during the Vietnam War. And she got hundreds of letters a week, fan mail from, from GIs over in Southeast Asia. And one of my jobs, I had to learn how to do Raquel's signature. Oh, really? Which had Raquel with like a heart. Um, <laughs> and there was an 8x10 glossy of, it's a famous still of her in, it's black and white, but the, in color it's red. She's in red bikini underwear, leaning on a Klieg light, uh, big hair, very sexy. And, oh, this um, is a bedazzled shot. From yeah, bedazzled. I this well. Yeah. Right, where she played Lillian Lust, mm -hmm. the girl with the bust. And <laughs> I would sign those autographs to, to these GIs and write them and send it back. I must have done thousands of them. Wow. Um, that was one of my jobs. But I loved being on the lot. It was very active. They were shooting lots of television, including the Irwin Allen shows. So there were always lobster men or, you know, <laughs> some kind of ridiculous monster walking around. While I was there, they, 
I got on the lot during Hello, Dolly, which was amazing. And then they did Beneath the Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. which uh, that's when I became friends with John Chambers. I used to hang out in the makeup department. I was bad. I mean, I played hooky a lot, and, and I would be on stages watching. I remember watching Ted Post directing uh, Land of the Giants, oh, wow. where the whole mo- the whole show, they used to shoot it on a Chapman to get the big POVs, the, <laughs> the little people. <laughs> and the spaceship in Land of the Giants, they had a potted jungle. Do you ever hear the expression of Sam Katzman jungle? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, well, Sam Katzman was, he was uh, the B movie entrepreneur. Well, yes. he did Jungle Jim and all these right. shows, and he would never buy anything. So he would rent potted palms and ferns, and the pots were always about, I don't know, two, two or three, two foot tall. And what he'd do is he'd bring several hundred of these things on a stage and these, you know, pots and ferns, and then make a jungle and you just never shot below the knee. <laughs> so it was the jungle. That very was all, economical. Yeah, very economical. Anyway, that was kind of like the set, although it was much more elaborate, on Land of the Giants where the spaceship was. And the, it was like a permanent set. And the spaceship was actually the flying sub from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Oh, wow. But it had two incredibly comfortable like office chair, armchairs <laughs> in the pilot's place. And I used to go sleep in there, you know. Oh. Um, <laughs> so but, you were like 20 years old. Oh, no, I was 17 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was oh, 17. So no, I left school. I'm a high school dropout. I left school as soon as I was able to get that job. Right. And uh, they made MASH, the Robert Altman movie there. You'd walk by stage 16, you could get a contact high <laughs> Dope coming out of there, the marijuana. That's where I met Donald Sutherland. Um, uh-huh. And then what else? Justine, the. You know, no one talks about that movie. Have you ever seen Justine? Anyway, Justine, it starred Anukami and uh, Dirk Bogard. I'm trying to think, had some really interesting people in it. And it was mostly filmed in Europe, um, right. in uh, Alexandria, in Egypt, and in, in Rome. George Cukor directed it, mm-hmm. and they came to the studio in L.A. to shoot the transvestite ball, <laughs> which was a big sequence in the movie. And one of the great treasury memories I have of like Hollywood was the lunch break on these two stages. They had big tables set up and catering set up, and the two units had broken. So there were about 150 men in drag, and then about 150 gorillas and chips, <laughs> all having lunch. And I thought, Hollywood. I was very happy there. Well, you were always drawn to gorillas. Ah, uh, yeah, it's true. I always like gorillas. And you have a That's, big gorilla in your living room, is it, or, or in your house? Well, yeah, that was a. Um, that's a, a mountain gorilla. That that was a gift. It's really a fiberglass sculpture, but it sure looks real. Um, Rick Baker's. Wedding gift to Deborah and I. In we got uh, married nineteen eighty. So how many years ago is that? Well, that's uh, thirty nine years ago. Well, thirty nine plus five. What's five? Uh, forty four. So we've been together forty four years and married thirty nine <laughs> years. So we've had that gorilla thirty nine years. Well, and your first movie is a gorilla movie, and you are the gorilla. Well, it's an ape man technically it's it's kind of a missing link but uh, you know the the interesting thing they don't talk about there's a lot of film theory discussed and written about now feminist film theory you know 
gay study, film theory, uh, just so much theoretical writing. But the real yardstick for a good movie is it does it have a gorilla suit in it? Because <laughs> pretty much every movie with a gorilla suit is a good movie. Is a good movie. Yeah. So, so who did you emulate? Charlie Gamora? Uh, in no, as Schlock. As it was Schlock. actually more Groucho than anyone. <laughs> He walked like Groucho Marx. He actually, if you look at the movie, I'm even like holding a, a fake cigar, but there's nothing there. It <laughs> makes no sense. Yeah. So the the most memorable visual I think is is the schlock drinking milk, which is a wonderful moment in the movie. <laughs> Such a terrible movie. <laughs> well, how did it come together? You always wanted to make movies. You lived in L.A. You were brought up in L.A. Well, I'd been I'd been a mailboy for over a year. When a man who I guess is my mentor, Andrew Marton, mm-hmm. Bundy Marton, but his name is Andrew Marton, who was a Hungarian, um, became an American. He started in, as a director in silence at Ufa in Germany. And then he's one of the many fleeing the Nazis who... Um, and Ufa was the famous studio where Fritz Lang did all of his... Oh, yeah. Metropolis it was, and it was a, and, a yeah. major film yeah. hub and studio, which is still there. Um but Bundy was cutting a movie that he had directed, and next to him was Lenny Riffenstahl cutting a movie. Oh, my God. Cutting wow. Triumph of the Tri- Will. Wow. Um, what's interesting is that Fritz Lang was the head of UFA, hmm. um, and he informed Bundy about six different directors. He called into his office and said, I strongly advise you to get the hell out of here. Wow. And uh, Fritz left. Everyone was like shocked. It was like, you know, and Bundy had a film editor who was a communist. And one day he came in to work in a brown shirt. And Bundy said, what the hell is this? He said, oh, Bundy, listen, if I don't join the Nazi party, I lose my job. And don't worry about it. This is true. He said, I'm a roast beef Nazi. Bundy Jeez. said, what's a, what's a roast beef Nazi? He says, I'm brown on the outside, but red on the inside. <laughs> and wow. Bundy picked up the phone and called his wife, Yarmila, and said, pack two bags. I'm coming right now. And he, he went home. He picked her up. They drove out of Germany across the border. The frontier was shut like two days later. Wow. Very lucky to get out. And uh, he went to Paris. And then from Paris, London, and then to Hollywood, he ended up working at MGM for over 50 years. He directed so many movies, things like King Solomon's Mines with right. Stuart Granger, um, a movie with Ronald Reagan called Men of the Fighting Lady, mm. Korean War picture. But he directed, and then he worked with Ivan Torres a lot. He made a lot made of stuff with Ivan. movies and things? Uh, yeah, he directed Around the World Under the Sea, oh, yeah. you know, which they yeah. shot for $11, you know. <laughs> Now, um, how, how did he act as your mentor? Well, his daughter, Tonda, was friends with my sister, Joan. They took guitar lessons from the same brilliant African-American woman, Harriet Williams. And uh, so I met her dad, you know, Tonda's dad. And, of course, I'm, I was a total fanboy, you know. Yeah. And um, Bundy's biggest credit, unfortunately, for Bundy is probably The Chariot Race and Ben-Hur, which he right, directed. Right, And he always regretted the stunt gaffer on that show was Yakima Knut, and he worked so hard and did so much. Bundy said to William Wyler, I think I should share credit with 
with Yak, which was the wrong thing to do because now people think Yak cannot direct it. I mean, right. Bundy directed it. Um, he directed all the battles and stuff in Cleopatra. Mm. Um, there's a wonderful battle in Cleopatra. It's called Battle of the Moon Gate where, uh, it, you know, I'm embarrassed. It's, it's Rex Harrison. Rex mm. Harrison was supposed to stand on this parapet and these flaming arrows are coming and stuff and Rex got very drunk. So Bundy said, I don't care. Bring him here. <laughs> and there's this amazing shot in the movie where fireballs are bouncing off his shield and all this stuff, which he would have never done sober. But um, <laughs> I think the most amazing thing I ever saw Bundy do that uh, was a movie called 55 Days at Peking. Mm-hmm which is kind of an interesting movie. It's credited to Nicholas Ray, but Nick Ray was drunk the entire time and Bundy okay. directed it. But there's there's some amazing stuff. There's this huge tower that the Chinese army brings against. The, it's a spectacular sequence at night. I mean, when you see it, you go, holy cow, because it's real. It's, there's no CG. It's like Ben-Hur. There's no CG. And... Man, it's spectacular. Anyway, Bundy uh, became a second unit director known for action. Mm -hmm. Um, Billy Wilder said, Billy told me, he said, I'm going to direct a movie in which this man calls his secretary into his office and then chases her around the desk. So I'm going to have Bundy come in to do the chase. You know, (laughs) but poor Bundy, you know, he, uh, anyway. So he became the second unit director of choice, and he was hired by Mike Nichols on a movie called Catch-22. An amazing movie. An amazing movie. Really Really forgotten movie, and came out the same year as MASH, and people have forgotten Catch-22. It's not perfect, but it's extraordinary. And based on an amazing book. Oh, the best book. Joseph Heller. Yeah, no, the best book, which I strongly recommend everyone read. Anyway, the movie Catch-22, Paramount, it was Gulf and Western then, had purchased, they had like the fourth largest air force in the world at that. They had like 26 B-25s, um, World War II aircraft that were held together with gaffer tape and rubber bands. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And there's this group called the Confederate Air Force, who are mostly doctors and dentists and stuff, who fly period aircraft. And as a hobby, but they're used in, they were used in movies all the time. And Paul Mance, you know, Frank Tallman and Paul Mance, Mm. they were the great stunt gaffers and stunt flyers. Ah. They did all the flying in Mad, 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 Mad World, which is amazing when they go through through the the poster and all that stuff. Anyway, um, so Bundy, well, I'm telling you, so (laughs) Bundy was going to be the second unit director on this movie. And he said to me, John, do you want to come work on the movie? Which would be instead of running onto a stage and watching till I was thrown out or I had to go back to the <laughs> mailroom, um, I could actually work on a movie. So I said, uh-huh. yes. And I left my job and went down to San Carlos in uh, deep Baja. It was um, Guaymas. It was this one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. They Paramount built this landing strip there. Mm. It was the, it's, you see in the movie how gorgeous it is there. It's supposed to be... Italy, but um, they brought all this aircraft down there and the unit, these brilliant uh, cinematographer Watkins and and 
Mike Nichols and this extraordinary cast. And I was with the second unit flying around in B-25s. Wow. And I hated it. <laughs> what was your job? I, I'd be on the mic. It was Bandero es Roja. <laughs> Bandero es Verde. You know, we were flying and I was part of the communication. Um, it was extraordinary what we were doing. Formation. When you see the movie, all of that flying is real. Oh, it had to be. And it's unbelievable what they did. And there's also stuff, long dollies with the actors, the principals walking along the runway and planes are taking off and landing yeah. and crashing. And it's it's amazing. It was also one of the first times front screen projection was used in the United States. Really? For the straight on shots of the crew in the B-25 and you see them in their ah, turrets. Um, but that was done back in LA. But the uh, I was not there very long. I was there maybe four weeks because mm-hmm. down there way below on that gorgeous set they built is Alan Arkin and Orson Welles and Mike, you know, Mike Nichols and Bob Newhart, Dick Benjamin, Paula Prentice. I'm trying to think Norman fell, John Voight. I mean, this amazing group of actors, just an amazing, Marty Balsam. I mean, an amazing, and I'm in a B 25 (laughs) and these things would vibrate. Like that. I mean, they would just bounce up and down. And after flying for two hours, you'd go up for two hours. This is going to sound odd, but the vibration was so intense that your jaw hurt and your nipples hurt. <laughs> really? It was, it was not oh a fun job. Oh. Um, but that was your beginning of a film career. Well, not really. I mean, yeah. I was a schlepper on this, the second unit. But yeah, I said, I can't, I'm not learning, I'm not learning anything here. Uh. Um, this is not helping me. I'm not. I'm going to go back to the mailroom where I was actually learning more because I could watch people. So I go to different sets and different offices where. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Were. And I hang out in the, yeah. in the makeup department with John Chambers and Dan Streepek and those yeah. guys. Um, anyway, so long story short, I go back in the mailroom for about eight months, and then Bundy calls me and says, Andrew Martani says, John. And he was not a young man then. He had to be 70 at least. And they call, he said, I've been hired to do second unit on a big MGM picture called The Warriors, mm-hmm. which is shooting in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Would you like, I can't promise you a job, but if you show up in Yugoslavia, which in 1969 was behind the Iron Curtain, which wow. meant something, yeah. um, maybe I can get you a job. So I lied to my mother and I told her I had a job, and I'd saved about eight hundred. I think about a thousand dollars. I'd saved, rolling in it. Yeah, I was I was wealthy, <laughs> and I'd saved about a thousand dollars because you, as a mailboy, I got forty eight dollars a week. Um, <laughs> so I bought a one way ticket TWA to London, hmm. which was like eight hundred dollars, <laughs> um, and. I, fl- I was so ignorant. I flew to London thinking, well, how, you know, Belgrade's got to be like, what, you know, two hours? Like San Francisco, you know. <laughs> so it took me a while. But I got to Belgrade, and uh, I ended up getting there before the unit got there, which was interesting. And <laughs> anyway, the bottom line is I did start working in the production office because there was nothing else, you know. And then I worked for a while with the uh, props. Dave Jordan, the great British prop guy who did movies like... Lawrence of Arabia and wow. stuff. 
And uh, he had great stories. But anyway, I make a very long story short. I ended up, they changed the title of the movie in post-production, and it was released as Kelly's Heroes. Right. Uh, Clint Eastwood, Donald Sutherland, who I had reunion with. Um, <laughs> Don Rickles. Don Rickles, Telly Savalas, Carol O'Connor. I had a huge, and the Yugoslav army playing Germans <laughs> and Americans. And uh, it was a big World War II comedy, uh, huge. And I was like a gopher on that. I ended up being quite essential to the unit. It was an international crew. The great, I still don't understand how, but the great Mexican cameraman, Gabriel Figueroa, was the DP. Bruce Surtees was his operator. Wow. Um and then it was mostly British, French uh, makeup, Italian wardrobe. It was big and international, uh, German and Austrian special effects. Wow. Um, and everybody like me sort of hated one another. <laughs> so I was essential. And it, it, the director, Brian Hutton, was very kind to me, like me. And I became, I was there nine months. Wow. You also did stunts and things in your Well, in that yeah. movie, I do a stunt, but it wasn't real. I, I ended up doing stunts because when that picture was finished, I'd made friends with a guy named Jim O'Rourke, who was an American college guy who was traveling in Europe and happened to be the same size as Clint Eastwood. Ah. And so he was hired in Madrid. They said, you want to double Clint Eastwood? And he went, what does it pay? <laughs> yes. Anyway, so... <laughs> Jim and I drove from Belgrade to Madrid. This is 69. And it was really at the height of the spaghetti boom. Mm -hmm. And Franco had made it advantageous to shoot films in Spain, as all good fascists do. And <laughs> he, uh, there were so many movies. And I lived in a town called Almeria, mm -hmm. um, which is where Leone made his pictures. It's where... Everybody made movies. I mean, there were at least three or four movies shooting there at one time. Where we're supposed to be in one soon. Supposedly. Yes. Yeah, yes. don't hold your breath. <laughs> um, but the uh, it was a fabulous experience because there was so much production. And as an American who spoke English, I could get jobs as dialogue coach. I could get jobs as... Uh, I'm in a lot of movies as an actor, although rarely my voice. Um <laughs> And I even, what happened was the a British production manager named Terry Lenz, I'll never forget it, said to, I'm, Jim and I are trying to get a job on this movie, Charge of Light Brigade, Tony Richardson's movie, mm -hmm. which is a great movie. Amazing. And uh, Terry says, do you do horse falls? <laughs> oh, God. And Jim goes, oh, absolutely born on a horse. <laughs> Rodeo cowboy. And I'm like thinking, <laughs> What? <laughs> And, you know, two days later, I'm a hussar drove, oh, galloping into the valley of death. <laughs> these, Somehow I don't see these explosions that way. Yes. No, actually, it was. you know what? I actually got pretty good because I could ride a horse, but you learn how to fall and not hurt yourself, and you learn how to different way. I, we even did running Ws, which are against the law now. Right. Um, but if that's done correctly, it's this, it doesn't hurt the horse at all. But, and it's good for the rider because you're thrown so far. But it's um, – so I did that for a while and worked on a lot of interesting movies. Red Sun, Toshiro Mifune killed me. And wow. uh, 
What else? I don't know. You know Franco Nero still claims he remembers me, <laughs> which I think he's lying. Um, in any case, I was, so I was in Almeria for over, gosh, a year and a half. So I'd been in Europe for like two years, and Brian Hutton was going to direct a movie in London, and he said, do you want to be my first? Because in my brain, I was going to be a director when I grew up, so any job on a movie was good. Right. So, so this would be first assistant First assistant, the first AD, and uh, I was going to shoot at Pinewood, and I said, oh, yes, please. Hmm. It was a movie that was released as X, Y, and Z. Elizabeth oh. Taylor, Susanna York, Michael Caine. Terrible movie. Anyway, <laughs> um, I, or I think Z and Company. I forgot, one or the other. Anyway, um, to, I went to London and it turned out I had to have, to be a member of the Directors Guild of America. So I, for the first time in two years, flew back to California it's a long story, but it turns out I was not allowed to join um, because I didn't have a didn't I, have the hours. I didn't have a high school diploma. Oh, really? I couldn't get the apprenticeship program. Oh, wow! In fact, I met with Robert Aldrich and Mervyn Leroy. Jesus, who uh, those Bob, are classic names? Yeah, Leroy, of course, directed uh, uh, Wizard of Oz, and no, he produced Wizard of Oz. Produced Wizard of he Oz. He directed Little Caesar, Little Caesar, and many other movies. But many um, other movies. and Bob Aldrich was a great American filmmaker who had right. terrifying eyebrows, <laughs> yeah, like Mephistopheles, like this yeah, <laughs> on his forehead. What's a baby Jane? Yeah, whatever happened to Baby Jane? The Longest Yard, The Dirty Dozen. Yeah. And, of course, Kiss Me Deadly, which if you have right. not seen Kiss Me Deadly, you should. One of the great film noirs of all time. Really good movie. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so this all leads us to how. Well, so then I was furious because it was like I was losing this great job and I was furious. And I went with Jim O'Rourke to Hollywood Boulevard at that time. This is 70, in, in their 71, 70. And at that time, Hollywood Boulevard was great if you were a movie buff or a junkie, but not great if you were anything else. It was real sleazy. Right. But it still had all those movie theaters and several theaters where you could see a triple feature for a dollar. I mean, it was great, Hollywood Boulevard. And many bookstores, you know, it was kind of an interesting, strange place. And we saw a triple feature for a dollar at the world. And one of the movies was Trog. Right. The Joan Crawford classic. It's a Herbin Cohen spectacular. Trog, which is a remarkably stupid movie. <laughs> um, I think it's her last film, maybe. I'm not sure. Yes. But it's <laughs> just the silliest movie. And the monster, Trog, is a prehistoric ape man. And it's kind of a pudgy guy. And he's wearing like a fur muff around his wrist and around his ankles, leather booties. And then he's got like a fur diaper. But the rest of him, he's just this pudgy, pasty English guy. And then his head, I really think, is one of the armatures Stuart Freeborn made for 2001. Oh, that makes sense. But not lit correctly or anything. Right. Painted you know? differently. Yeah. But anyway, it's a very strange and silly movie. And uh, and you thought I could do that. Well, I was fascinated by the movie because of the sheer balls of it. 
It was like, it was one of those, did anyone see dailies? Did anyone re, re and, and Joan Crawford's committed, you know, yeah. and it's just a Pepsi's all around. It's a terrible movie. Anyway, and I went home and I wrote Schlock. Hmm. And then Jim said, we should do this. And I said, what? He said, Schlock. I went, what? So by that time, I had about $30,000, $32,000 from two years of work. And uh, Jim had a little money, and then we raised the rest. And for $60,000, we made Schlock. Right. Now, you made a movie. How does it get out there? Well, it doesn't for years. I mean, if you look at Schlock, it always says 1973. But in fact, it was made 1971. And you were 21 years old. Yeah, I was 21. That's my excuse. (laughs) Um, And the movie's claim to fame really is it's among the very earliest thing that Rick Baker did. He was 20. Right. Um, I found this guy who was clearly brilliant. Uh, in any case, the so Schlock was made, and then I continued to do stunts and in L.A., though. Well, Jack Harris was the guy who had distributed The Blob. That no, was, he had produced he The produced Blob. He produced The Blob. Jack was an exhibitor right. in Philadelphia, I think, and he produced The Blob. He made The Blob. And with The Blob, he started distributing it himself, although I think the initial release was a studio, I think Paramount or... Somebody released it. Then he got the rights back, and then he started distributing it. And then he made another movie called 4D Man. Right, with Robert Lansing. Right, and then a shockingly terrible movie called Dinosaurus. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) I loved it as a kid at the drive-in. Were you using drugs? (laughs) Not me. How old were you? Uh, Well, God, I must have been 12 or something. Okay, I guess I'll let, <laughs> Twelve is okay. I'll let that pass. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, <laughs> when I made the movie, I thought we were very Jim and I were very naive. We thought, okay, we have a movie. Now we just go to the majors and say, here, you want to distribute the movie? Right. And the answer was, no, get out. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know. It, it, again, we were wrong. We should have gone on a plane and flown to Cannes. Mm-hmm or to me fed for one of the marches and sold it around the world, which we could have done easily, but we were dumb and didn't know that. So we were rejected, rejected, and finally this schlockmeister, <laughs> Jack H. Harris, Appropriately, he was intrigued by it. He said, it's 10 minutes too short. If I give you, I think he gave us $15,000 to shoot 10 minutes which we did in a day and a half. I mean, really shot a lot of shit, including uh, Schlock goes into a movie theater and he sees on the screen Dinosaurus and the Blob, a way to make the film longer. You know. Um, in any case, so we, we finished the movie and he released it and actually played all over the world and he did quite well with it. We never saw any money. Um, and it was re-released as Banana Monster. Yeah, after Animal House came out, Harris decided, "Oh, now that Landis did Animal House, he sold it as from the director of Animal House." You know, a right. grossly inferior low-budget film. <laughs> um, and yeah, anyway, the irony of it all is many years. I mean, I don't know how many decades later, as of. Now, the, I now own it. Yay. <laughs> Which is, you know, that and $6 will get me a latte. Uh, it'll get you a Blu-ray special edition at least. Yeah, well, it did. 
Yeah. Um, so Schlock got out there, and you ended up making the most successful independent movie of all time at that time. At that with time. Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah. So how did that come together? Well, the same radio show you heard was heard by a guy named Bob Shane, who was a talent booker for The Tonight Show. And he called me up and said, can I see the movie? This before, One of the ways we got a distributor was because I was uh, Carson was shown the movie, Johnny Carson, and he loved it, strangely enough. And so I was on The Tonight Show to promote Schlock, and they showed two clips, and that's how we got our distributor, really. Wow. And Schlock is the only film that Carson ever gave a, a quote. He said, really wild, really funny, and he allowed us to say Johnny Carson in the ads. Um, in any case, so I was on that show, and I had been working for a company called Video Systems. Video Systems was a company uh, that made video cassette training films, wow. trucking safety, um, <laughs> training films for Parker Center of the LAPD, um, just all these like motivation, all this terrible industrial stuff. And I was hired to do stunts on like, you know, and, and it was so silly. The guy who ran the company was named Bob Weiss, who was a very funny guy. And we did stuff like the correct way to exit a forklift, you know, or something. <laughs> and then the, the incorrect way. Ah! You know, we did, we did ridiculous things. And I ended up directing some stuff for them um, and then and doing stunts. And then Bob used to play basketball with Jerry Zucker, David Zucker, Jim Abrams, who were the Kentucky Fried Theater, every Saturday. I didn't know them. And I was on The Tonight Show, and the next day David Zucker said, you know, I saw this guy on television who's our age. And he made a movie, a monkey movie, and Bob said, I know him. He works for me. <laughs> so I had lunch with the Zucker, Abram, Z-A-Z, they called, um, at the Hamburger Hamlet on... Sunset? No, on, I think, San Vicente and Melrose or somewhere. Uh, I don't know where it was, Beverly or something. Anyway, but we, we had lunch, and... They wanted to make a movie, and I said, "Great, do you have a script?" And they looked at me like, "What's that?" You know. <laughs> so I said, "Well, there's a screenplay form. Can we get one?" I said, "Well, yeah." So I go to my car, and I had an American Werewolf in London, which I'd written, you know, in Yugoslavia. Could when you sell. were 19 years yeah. old, yeah. And I said, "Here, this is the form." And it's a long story, but they pitched me this movie called Kentucky Fried Airplane. And as they described it, I said, wait a minute. Isn't this a real movie? Isn't this zero hour? And they go, yeah. I said, well, there's, there's, a, there's a difference between parody and plagiarism. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but the movie Zero Hour, which stars Robert Stack as right. the pilot, and all that, if you see that film, I would say 45 to 50% of the dialogue in Airplane is directly from the movie. <laughs> And then they make gags and go crazy and right. make that very funny movie. But I read it, and so it turns out Zero Hour was produced by Howard Koch. And they took it to him, and he threw them out. You know, <laughs> So I say it was Bob Weiss. They say it was me. But somebody said, why don't we just do your show? And they had a cabaret on Pico. They used to do skits. 
very successfully. So we uh, Kentucky Fried Movie's about half based on skits from the show and then half new stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. I mean, the one... The sketches. Th- yeah. Sketches. The one thing we tried to do was be cutting edge, and we did some television stuff on videotape mm-hmm. to transfer to film. Right. And we thought how clever, but actually it just looked bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but so it was shot on 35-millimeter film, and we shot it in 20 days for half a million dollars. And it was picked up... Um, by United Artists Theaters, and they just that movie made a lot, made like forty some million dollars, and uh, that's how I got Animal House. And the rest is comedy history, sort of. <laughs> well, what's the appeal of monsters? You've actually written a book of monsters, a photo book of monsters that's really incredible. Oh, monsters in the movies. Monsters in the movies. It's a wonderful coffee table book that you can actually read as well. There you go. As look at pictures. So what is the appeal to you about the Well, monsters? I've always, like all boys, you know, we like monsters. Um, <laughs> little boys like dinosaurs. It's kind of a thing. But I really, I love everything about monsters. I'm a little tired of most contemporary monster designs. For the last seven years, they all kind of look the same. But mm-hmm. um, there's nothing more heartbreaking or beautiful or disturbing than the Karloff Frankenstein, you know, the combination of his face and Jack Pierce's makeup. I mean, it, it, and his performance, I mean, it's extraordinary. I just, monsters are, do you ever see Forbidden Planet? Of course, the id monster. The id monster, you know, but that's what they are. They are our unconscious. And, you know, for the book, I interviewed a bunch of prominent People in fantasy and horror. I, I interviewed Joe Dante and John Carpenter and Sam Raimi and Christopher Lee and Ray Harryhausen and more. Who I can't. Oh, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. That was before he was Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, before he was Oscar winner. Yes. Now he's like you know. <laughs> anyway, um, and a, who else? Someone else. It's creepy how many of those people have passed away. But in yeah. any case. I remember with John Carpenter, I said, you know, what scares you? And he said the best answer. He said, people. Because there's there's no such thing as monsters. You know, there are no vampires or werewolves or, or zombies. Or, it's just not true. Um, but there is madness and there is ignorance and there is hate and fear. And people do monstrous things as keep being proven over and over again. Were there people that you met when you put together that book whom you did not know before that you sought out to talk about the monsters? I did a lot of research, mostly in libraries, though. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fascinating to hear from everybody what what scared them, what was interesting. Chris, uh, Chris Lee told a really good story about when he saw Frankenstein in 1931, you know, and he was a little boy, um, he didn't sleep for weeks because whenever he'd open his eyes, he'd see the monster at the foot of his bed. Wow. You know, and so, you know, it's powerful stuff. And he became what he feared. (laughs) Well, you know that Joe says in his interview the best thing, which is monsters are metaphors. And he's right. Monsters are metaphors. I mean, the most obvious example I can give is... uh, Godzilla, I mean, the only country that's ever had an atomic 
bomb dropped on it makes a movie about a gigantic fire-breathing radioactive monster that destroys <laughs> cities. I mean, that's not subtle. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you're you're a student of film in a lot of ways. You you know the history a lot. And the first time you and I worked together when I was doing publicity at Universal was uh, a compilation called Coming Soon. Oh, yeah. Where we put together trailers from the history, the vault of Universal's horror history. And... That was something really interesting because you knew a lot about that history, particularly of that studio. Well, I yeah, I'm I I love motion pictures, and uh, so yeah, I know a lot about the history of film. Um, in trailers, in particular, was really a fun thing to do to put that together. Well, that was a you know a money grab by Universal. Do you know that was the first thing produced for? specifically for home video ever. So that's how old we are. So you and I wrote it, I produced it, you directed it. (laughs) And that's how I met Jamie Lee Curtis, Yes, who I hired to do Trading Places not too long after. Well, a huge fan of yours, uh, going back to Monsters, um, doing Thriller, Michael Jackson had seen an American werewolf in London and came to you and... and, um, Tell me how that process happened. Well, you worked with Michael. Michael wanted to turn into a monster. What he was fascinated with was really Rick Baker's work on the metamorphosis. And that was his idea. I just want to turn into a monster. So Mm -hmm. I, uh, Rick Baker and I, we had a picture book of monsters and went through it. And Michael kept going, oh, you know, it was like (laughs) too scary. scary. Um, And then I went home and uh, wrote a script because I, I, what I pitched to Mike and wh- what he responded to was not doing a needle drop three-minute video. I wanted to make a short film. Right. The whole idea was so it could play theatrically um, and bring back the theatrical short. Um, it's a complicated story. But the bottom line is it, it, we made this 15 or 16-minute short film. And it was ridiculously successful. Right. And again, Rick worked on it, and my wife, Deborah, designed it, you know. And uh, and to be able to sell it, you had to do a documentary on the making of it. Well, so that's you how we, not to sell it, yeah, program. that's how we financed it. Uh-huh. It was George Folsey's idea, because no one would give us the money. So George said, um, why don't we film us filming it? Mm-hmm. And then that'll be like a 45-minute making of, and we'll attach it to Thriller. So so you've got a home video purchase. No, no. This, no. no, not at all. That uh, was to sell to, to television. Uh, there was no home video. But one of the things that, Adam, that Thriller did, Michael Jackson's Thriller had a huge impact in many ways. But one of the un, unintended <laughs> but things, that it established the home video market because... Uh-huh. If you recall, when home video came out, to buy a movie was eighty to one hundred and twenty dollars. Right. It was so expensive, which is why mom and pop video rental places opened, and then eventually into whatever blockbuster, blockbuster and stuff, because you couldn't afford the videos. So it had been this ginormous success on television all over the world. And then I got a call from a guy from Texas named Austin First, who said. I got a company, Vestron Video, which turned out to be a mob thing later. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It's like, uh, that's right. how Toby never got his money for mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw. In any case, um, 
And my idea is to release the making of Thriller and Thriller, which is only an hour, right? On VHS and um, Laserdisc. No, it was before Laserdisc. Oh, Betamax. V- Betamax yeah. and Beta, VHS and Beta. And I said, "But who would buy it? It's on TV. It's free." And he said, "No, we'll sell through," which I'd never heard of. And it was twenty nine ninety five instead of a hundred dollars. <laughs> And it sold like 4 million units in the United States. And it made the home video business a viable business. And that's why the price went down so much. And for a while there, it was a good source of revenue. But that was monsters. Uh, and and Well, that was music. The reason I did that was I had made, I love musicals and I had made the Blues Brothers. Right. And, you know, John and Danny are not, I mean, they move wonderfully, but they're not real dancers. No. And so my first idea, which I did in Chicago when we were there, was to use amateur dancers and kind of funky choreography. Um, and then we came back to L.A., and I looked at it, and I went, well, that was a mistake. <laughs> so the last number I had to shoot was uh, the church. Mm-hmm. I thought, we'll get some real dancers in here. Right. <laughs> but I was very anxious when Michael approached me, what was exciting to me was shooting the musical number, the dance. And that's really impressive because a lot of music videos, even when there is dance, they don't know how to shoot dance. You're shooting groups of dancers. You're shooting head to toe. You're doing kind of Gene Kelly's work uh, in, in a way, uh, the way that you directed the choreography for Thriller. Well, yeah. Thriller was an opportunity to do a, a musical correctly. I mean, the shot I'm proudest of in Thriller is uh, the dolly there's a it's about two and a half minutes long one shot but it's two cameras i i put two cameras on a dolly a with wide, him and ola with him and ola i wide, was there a wide well you were there yes i watched and, that the, happen. And, and we shot you know we went eight i think six blocks along yeah. like and michael danced around ola you know singing the song and that i'm very proud of because it's one shot. Yeah. And I think that because you cut back and forth between the cameras, you don't realize you're not aware it's yeah. one shot. But that's a sustained performance and Mike just pops. And the reason, you know, Ola Ray never got enough credit because she's looking at him. First of all, she was adorable, but second of all, she just was so she had such a crush on him, you know, she was right. so moony that it makes the whole <laughs> thing work. Yeah, I was watching that, and it was amazing to see it happening um, because once you called action, suddenly this dynamo is in front of you, and he's like lightning. He's electrical. And once you call cut, he just, how was that, John? <laughs> it was this total... Do, do you ever see, You saw Mike in concert, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, think in about Mexico City in a stadium. Yeah, think yeah. about Michael in concert performing live. Is he was literally explosive. I mean, you could be in an, uh, you know, I saw him at Wembley and, and you know, I mean, you could be in a place with 35, 40,000 people and he's, you know, tiny on stage, but the amount yeah. of energy coming, he was a remarkable performer. Yeah. Phenomenal. Well, of course, Cynthia and I were both zombies, zombies. in Thriller. And, uh, and You're the grumpy zombie. I'm the grumpy zombie. Well, my, when Michael's coming to Ola's POV, when the zombies are closing in and he's reaching yeah. for her, you're right at his right, and Cynthia's right behind him. Yep. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. you're, well, you're well-featured zombies. 
So I got even with you. I had you as an actor uh, a few times, and it was really fun. In well, let's see what was first. Uh, Sleepwalkers was, I guess, the first time that with we Cynthia were... and Joe Dante were exactly. detectives or something. Exactly, you were working. Uh, uh, yes, trying to figure out who killed uh, or who attacked poor Tanya in in there, and then uh, after that was in Quicksilver Highway, and you put uh, me in a surgical mask. Yes. With Clive Barker. Right. Yeah. That's what Sam Raimi... I'm in like three Sam Raimi movies, and I'm always in a surgical mask. Yeah. So you don't know it's me. You know, I'm just... I'm in one. I'm in The Quick and the Dead. And on a horse. You got a better... No, I wasn't on a horse. Oh, yes, I was on yes, a horse. Yes, you think of it. Yeah, I was hanging Gary Sinise after Sam had cameoed in The Stand with Gary Sinise. So, uh, anyway. And I'm in The Stand. You are in The Stand, and... You're a rabbinical student. Yeah, I saved the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that was uh, that was the second one. And then Quicksilver was the third one. I love that photograph. There's a photograph of a bunch of the makeup guys and Matt Frewer in makeup and <laughs> Stephen King and you and me and, gosh, just a whole line of people in Vegas before the, is, do you have that picture? Oh, that's the cast and crew. No, shot. no, no. It's in Vegas, but, yeah, and know, we're all lined up. I know and that it's one before very... they built that thing over the Fremont light, Street. The Fremont experience. Yeah, so it's yeah, Fremont yeah. Street with the old neon. It's, yeah, it's the silliest photo. Well, let's talk about Masters of Horror a little bit. Okay, um, because Max, your son, wrote that uh, script with you when he was nineteen, the same age you were when you wrote. An American Werewolf in London. Pretty much. And so, in a way, it's kind of a tribute to American Werewolf, and it was the first episode of Masters of Horror that we shot. You know, I didn't remember that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. The very first day of shooting was in the casino in Burnaby or wherever. In, in Oh, uh, you're in that. You win, I, you win at roulette. I, <laughs> I am. I have a cameo there. That I was love that day. actor. There was a Native American actor who played the casino guy. Right. He was great, he that was guy. Great. And you and Brian Ben-Ben working together again. After well, Brian's Dream wonderful. Hunt. He's yeah. wonderful. But the opportunity to come in and do something without uh, studio and network interference was the whole appeal to it. And I was wondering what your experience with that was like. It was fun. The the uh, <laughs> When you approached me with that, you're going to shoot it in Vancouver. You're going to have, what, seven days? Or I forgot what it was. Ten days. Ten days. Luxury. And, yeah. uh, and I forgot how much money. Two million bucks. Really? Yeah. But it was a union show. Give and, me two million yeah. bucks now. Anyway, <laughs> yes. it was, but it was, whatever it was, these were the parameters. And I thought, okay, well, it's Vancouver, so it has to take place in like Seattle or Oregon or someplace that the Pacific Northwest. And I thought, you know what? I was 19, well, I was 18 when I wrote Werewolf. So Max was in college in Florida and I called him. I said, you want to write a script? And he said, what? And I told him because he's been writing screenplays since he was seven literally and um i said yeah i want it to be a monster but it can't be a zombie (laughs) (laughs) and uh and i don't want that for joe i don't want a vampire i just but a monster so max sent me a big book of north american cryptozoology you know sasquatch mothman all these things chupacabra and stuff mm-hmm. and he had bookmarked like four different monsters 
And I looked through them, you know, Windigo and all. So I'm looking through it, and I came across a, one he did not mark called The Deer Woman. Right. And what was fascinating to me about The Deer Woman was, you know, people think that American Indians are some monolithic. Well, actually, Native Americans, there were hundreds of tribes mm-hmm. with different religions and different languages and different. And the Deer Woman, surprisingly, was sort of in in not only in the, you know, Pueblo Indians in New Mexico, but also the Comanche and the Cherokee and the Seminole and the Apache. It was like, they all have this creature. So this was drawn from an actual legend. Oh, yeah. It was, you know, like all cryptozoology right. is. And, and she's this mythical creature. She's basically a succubus. Like, like She's also like Pan because she has goat legs. Mm-hmm. So or deer legs, I should right, correct yes. deer legs. So <laughs> she woman, yeah. she is normal and beautiful to her puppet, and then she has goat. I'm sorry, <laughs> deer legs, which she hides under a long skirt. And in the legend, she comes out in time of celebration and seduces warriors. And so once they make love to her then she murders them horribly by stomping on them and i was just intrigued by that because it was so nuts and i said max how about do it a dear woman and i got a violent response uh, he hated the idea and i said well tough you want the job or not this is what i want to do. yeah and then he said well how do i approach it it's so stupid and i said you know the same thing i always say about fantasy or every movie, you make up the rules for this movie. Because all the rules, it's fantasy. It doesn't matter. It's just as long as you're true to them in this movie. Yeah. So he he said, well, well, I don't even know how to approach it. So I say, well, you can approach it a traditional way, which is do it as a as a police movie, which is, you know, there's workplace movies, there's cop movies, but these one of the tropes of fantasy is you take a fantastic thing and you treat it as real as possible. So there's a series of horrible murders that are completely bizarre. And the detectives who are trying to solve this, or the scientists who are trying to solve this crime, this impossible crime, come to an impossible conclusion. This is what's doing it, but it that's not real, you know. So he said, okay. So he wrote a script in like two days. He sends it to me, and it's great. I just loved it. I, the only thing I didn't like was he makes reference to American Werewolf in it. Right. And I said, no, I really hate that. And unfortunately, the producer, Mick Garris, said, no, I think that's good. I think people will like that. And so I was outvoted. but. I, <laughs> I still regret it. But that any, was a very passive response for you. Yeah. But in any case, I had two notes for Max, and that's how good the script was. I said, I want to see her actually seduce someone. She doesn't speak, you know, but I want to see her seduce someone. And he had her killed at the end. And I said, she can't die. She's a spirit. Mm-hmm. So he said to me, who made up that rule? <laughs> You killed the werewolf, and I said, "Yeah, but I made up the werewolf. The deer woman is an existing legend, and you can't kill a spirit, right? So that's easy. Just correct that, and 
I want to seriously, well, how can she seduce someone without talking? And I said, women do it all the time. <laughs> and so what was interesting was he refused. Really? Yeah. Well, he was 18. And I yeah. said, listen, you little shit, you've got to do this. We had this big fight on the phone. And I ended up saying, I don't think you understand the, the positions here. Yeah, I'm the, the director. You're director. the writer. <laughs> so here's what we do. Either you write, which, by the way, would take him 10 minutes. <laughs> I said, you write it. Or if you don't, I'll write the changes. And I'll take a credit and half your money. <laughs> and he said, fuck you. <laughs> so what happened was, and I regret it. Because it says written by Max Landis and John Landis. Well, the truth is, I wrote one scene, mm-hmm. and it's a, you know one scene. This election scene, it's one scene, and people thought when it came out because he was so young, people assumed I had written it, right? Which right. I didn't. I didn't write that. That's not like me. That's like Max. The way it was turned into us, it had both your names on it. Yeah, I know. I, that was a mis- I made a mistake. <laughs> But in any but case, we were the first ones to hire Max to write a screenplay. Yeah, well, that was produced. That was produced. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting is that I, uh, it was a good experience. It was fun. I had a DP that everybody said, oh, he's a nightmare, John. And yeah. we got along great. Yeah. So it was fine. You know, I was happy. And then the second year, I figured, well, I better make something more horrific. Mm hmm. I mean, Dear Woman was extremely graphically gross, right? but it was funny. Exactly. So I said, okay, now I better make something. So it, uh, I'd read, I read a screenplay <coughs> years ago called Frailty. Bill had come off Terminator and <coughs> the movie um, with, thank you, with, with Jamie, uh, True Lies. Right, right. So Bill was and Titanic. So he right. was a big. He was very hot then, and he said, "If you let me direct it, I'll start it for free." Wow! So he won out. But that was one of the few scripts I really thought was great. Anyway, um, so I thought I'll hire him. So I called him up, and I pitched a couple of ideas. What the hell is his name? So was the idea for family? Brett. Uh, yeah. What's his name? Brent Hanley, yes, yeah. who's in Texas and a wonderful writer. Yeah, and um, I pitched him. I said, "Well, I want to do something like Psycho, because you know, I I try to refrain from human murderer killers because they're real. It's you know not that hard. Right, that, that happens. It's like my wife Deborah; she'll see any monster movie, <laughs> any science fiction movie, any monster movie, but she won't see Silence of the Lambs." Wow. She won't see American Psycho. It's too real. It's, and too it's real. You know, yeah. that happens. So, you know. Um, in any case, the, the he wrote me a wonderful screenplay. Yeah, Family is a great script. Great script. And I got uh, George Went, right. who's a terrific... I'd seen on stage, and George is a terrific... That was a complicated role, and he was yeah. great. Yeah. And, you know, we shot that silly movie, and, you know... And I was able to do that last shot. You know. Oh, the... the, the, the <laughs> Where you actually go in, inside go George it. Went, for real. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, because of that and an American Werewolf, you have been 
christened a horror director, a master of horror. My son made a uh, he wrote a movie that was reviewed by the hell's her name Marhala Dargis, some a critic for the Marhala New York Dargis, yeah. yeah, for the New York Times. And so she said the screenplay was by Max Landis, parenthesis, son of noted horror director John Landis. <laughs> and I just thought, Jesus Christ, you know, the guy who made Animal House, The Blues Brothers, Trading Places, Three Amigos, Coming to America, known for horror. Well, how do you see yourself as a filmmaker? How would you describe what you do? I'm a director. You know that Michael Curtiz has the career I envy. Yeah. Because he was this Hungarian guy who made Casablanca and Yankee Doodle Dandy Mm -hmm. and... Well, he made Robin Hood. He made so many films, a Dodge City, of every genre. Right. Mildred Pierce. I mean, he just did every genre. And they are all terrific. He made musicals. He made gangster movies. He made horror films. I mean, he made whatever he was assigned. Dr. X, yeah. Dr. X with Humphrey Bogart as a vampire. But, the and they're good movies, you know. And, And it's just... I've never understood the typing of of filmmakers, um, and I know a lot of people. I mean, Guillermo only wants to make fantasy and and horror stuff, and John Carpenter, you know, like he branded it, you know, John Carpenter put his name literally in the titles. Everyone, so you, he was like a monster guy or a horror guy, and and Toby Hooper ended up doing that, and so many people. Um, George Romero hated it. He hated the idea that he could get money to do zombies and nothing else. Nothing else, yeah. You know, and there's so many talented guys who embrace it. You know, this is what we do. This is what we like. And they become a brand. I really have never understood, I still don't understand, to be a film director, your job is to tell the story through the juxtaposition of images to create montage, to create a narrative. And you tell them where to put the camera, and you direct the actors' performances. And I don't think it matters if it's a comedy or a war movie or a monster movie or a musical or a western or a political picture or a thriller or film noir. It's motion pictures. So I don't get it. And they say to people, I've had this all the time, well, he only does, like Bundy got typed, he was an action director. Right. You know, it's like, what? And the truth is, action's the easiest thing in the world. Because, see that car? Blow it up. Boom! (laughs) You know, I mean, it really is the easiest thing to direct because gunshots are inherently violent and it's kinetic. Um, Whereas the hardest thing to direct in the world is seven people sitting around a table having a conversation. Right. And making that interesting. A courtroom drama, yeah. I did a courtroom. It turned out to be easier than I thought because everybody is so delineated where they are. The geography is so laid out. The judge, the jury. the Technically the, easy the t- to stage. To yeah. stage and to shoot. Well, it's time-consuming to shoot. Mm-hmm. Whereas it, I find that scenes around tables, especially with more than four people, it's so complicated because you think, well, that's her. So you shoot a single this way, but then... When she's talking to him, she's got to look this way, and then he's got to look. Right, and screen direction is confusing. I did an eleven-minute scene with a dozen people around a table in the stand, 
and we circled the table with it and, and figuring out screen direction was so complicated because one actor will be talking to a direction, uh, an actor in one direction and then in another direction and they talk to each other in exchange. It's so complicated. But you did it not in one shot. No. Oh, no, you, no, you no. set it up. But just it's, covering it and everything. It's so complicated. And moving and, camera versus still camera. And to make it interesting. Yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, but what's fascinating to me is people think that's easy, whereas comedy's hard. Or right. And I get, the, the one I do understand the most is comedy because some people have a feeling for it and some people don't. I actually think it's among the easiest things to do when people well, have trouble with it. Well, you excel at it. But there are people who are not good at making horror movies who are good at making other films. See, I don't get that. I don't understand that. The building of tension can be a complicated thing to do. Nah, not if the script is right. Well, it's all about the screenplay. If you have a great screenplay, you can make it scary. Fair you know. Enough. Well, one last thing. I'd love to find out who... The people were who inspired you. The everybody, you. everybody. Yeah. Oh no! I mean, I, I could throw all the big names at you, like Hitchcock and Capra and Hawks and McCary and Stevens and all the big Hollywood guys. But Fellini, I just I adore Fellini, and uh, especially his early neorealist stuff like La Strada. You know, I mean, I just think La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half, Eight and a Half. Joe Dante said to me something that was very profound. I think in the seventies, sometime when I met him, when you know he was one of those guys who went to see the movies on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Um, but uh, he said to me that Eight and a Half is a different movie once you've directed a film. Uh-huh. And I really think that it's actually direct a couple of movies. I mean, actually get in the saddle and and know the job. And it is. It's completely different film. It's wonderful. That's a uh-huh. great, great movie. Um, but, you know, I like Bergman. I like, I love Truffaut. I mean, there's. I love Kurosawa. There's a lot of Japanese filmmakers whose names I unfortunately couldn't reel off, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of great Japanese films. And there's a lot of, I like, you know, I really like musicals. Yeah. I mean, Stanley Donan just passed away. Yeah. And he made, you know, Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. And that movie's perfect. And Bedazzled. And Bedazzled, which is really fun. Yeah. Well, John, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's always great to, to talk for public consumption as well. as. as yes, it's in, our private conversations are disgusting. <laughs> Filthy. Mick has the foulest mouth of anyone I've ever met. We've been thrown out of restaurants. <sighs> Because people overhear him. I try to keep that a secret. Okay. <laughs> thank you, John, and thank you for listening to Postmortem. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.
Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.